walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast. It's episode 28. I'm Dave Whitson, and this episode focuses on the Generalissimo, Francisco Franco, who ruled Spain for the better part of four decades. As I was thinking about my understanding of the Camino, I realized that I had a blank space of sorts in the 20th century. It's funny, when you look at a lot of the popular retellings of the Camino and its resurgence in the 1980s, it sounds almost like it just sort of happened spontaneously. But of course, there were extended historic forces at work there that had been unfolding for the better part of decades prior to it really exploding again in the 1980s. So I wanted to go back and look at that process more closely. And at the center of that, and the center of that time period, of course, is Franco, the most influential figure in 20th century Spanish history. So to really understand the Camino's resurgence, I felt like I needed to understand Franco better. And to that end, I reached out to Dr. Stanley Payne, who is at the University of Wisconsin and is one of the foremost biographers of Francisco Franco. And our conversation focused primarily on the big picture, who Franco was, how he came to power, but we also hit on some issues relevant to the Camino, places like El Ferro on the Camino Inglés, Guernica on the Camino del Norte, and Franco's relationship with the larger region of Galicia. But then after that, I connected with Dr. Sasha Pack, who's at University of Buffalo, and he's researched and written about the resurgence of the Camino between 1879 and 1988. And so at that point, the conversation zooms in more closely on Franco's impact on the Camino de Santiago and Santiago de Compostela specifically. And one of the things that's really interesting is that while Franco was dramatically reshaping Spain, one of his greatest impacts with regards to the Camino was preventing the reshaping of Santiago de Compostela. So that's the focus of this episode. And if you're like me, you'll learn a ton. I just really enjoyed speaking with these two professors. So that's the plan for today. Pain and Pack. It sounds almost like a buddy cop movie, but it's the Camino podcast. Stay tuned. Dr. Stanley Payne is Professor Emeritus in University of Wisconsin's Department of History, following nearly 40 years of work at that institution. He's one of the foremost authorities on modern Spanish history, with numerous volumes and scores of academic articles published on topics, including the Second Spanish Republic, the Spanish Civil War, and most notably Francisco Franco, where he has served as a prominent biographer of the man. Among his most recent publications, one can find his co-authored work, Franco, A Personal and Political Biography, as well as Spain, A Unique History. Thanks for speaking with me today, Dr. Payne. And given that Franco has been a central focus of your academic career, what drew you to him? Well, uh, for the obvious reasons that he was the dominant figure in Spanish history for the last (laughs) 400 years and uh, ruled the country for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that uh, uh, I did a history of the Franco regime 
back in the 1980s. And then uh, I probably would have been willing to, to have, have left it at that, but the leading publisher in Spain prevailed on me to do a very short biography for the centenary in 1992. Mm-hmm. I always said that I didn't do biography, but uh, I did a short one for that occasion, and it sold very well. <laughs> and uh, th- that definitely was going to be the end until I found 10 years ago that uh, Carmen Franco, the daughter, was trying to get in touch with me. And it turned out that she was willing to do a series of interviews about her father for a British documentary filmmaker. Hmm. Uh, but she needed an interviewer to ask the question. <laughs> so she had hit on me. And so uh, I made an arrangement to do that and took on a Spanish collaborator. We signed an agreement with her lawyer, who happened to be her, her oldest son, the one who had his name changed, so that his name was Francisco Franco, or hmm. Francis, as he likes to have himself called. And the, the deal was basically that uh, we could use the interview material however we wanted in our writings, and uh, I would have no claim whatsoever against the videotaped material for the documentary. So that basis created a series of 500 questions. We did a whole series of sessions, two sessions in the long Spanish morning for practically an entire <laughs> week. Uh, and the documentary maker collected, obviously, a whole series of videotapes of this mm-hmm. and we made our own audio tape and transcribed it and uh, therefore did a book about that uh, in terms of her reminiscences of, of, of her father mm-hmm. uh, but uh, my Spanish collaborator wanted to get this into English and I said well there's no point in publishing this kind of thing in English no one wants to uh, read about Franco and his daughter to that extent it will, this will have to be a biography and so that way we kind of backed into doing the biography <laughs> That's the one that was published two years ago. But had it not been for the initiative of Carmen Franco herself, uh, I would have stopped this business back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting about your research and your work is that you've had access that many other historians have not through your conversations with Carmen Franco, through your access to Francisco Franco's uh, personal archives that you, you seem to have an angle on Franco that, that many other historians in the field must be envious of? Well, there are others who have, have done that, but basically there, there is three kinds of historians of Franco. The extremely uh, negative ones, the positive ones, and the ones who try to be more objective. Now, I've tried simply to be more objective, and so they, uh, the, the daughter gave me credit for that. Hmm. But, uh, in fact, the person who really was responsible for putting the archive together is a Spanish historian, really a medievalist by, by profession, but a strong supporter of Franco named Luis Suarez. And he used the archive ad infinitum in a whole series of books. He's published a total of no less than 10 volumes. Mm. So he's really used the archive, but not, not let us say, in a very objective way. <laughs> uh, so there, there, there are other people who have had access, but I hope I have been able to use it rather differently. Mm-hmm. Let's take it back to the beginning with Franco, because he was born and spent his childhood in El Ferro, in the region of Galicia, and that's where one of the variants of the Camino Santiago, the Camino Inglés, begins. So I'm curious how his childhood in El Ferro, in Galicia, shaped him. It shaped him in terms of two different things. Mm-hmm. One is that his father was a uh, career naval officer, so this uh, had him grow up within the psychological and emotional framework of patriotism, Spain, 
the armed forces, national service, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that kind of idea obviously was there for, from his uh, childhood. And the other way that it shaped him was because his mother was very different from his father. Parents really didn't get along. His father, uh, for kind of odd for a Spanish naval officer that period, was something of a libertine and a free thinker. Mm-hmm. Whereas Franco's mother was very pious, very Catholic, and she had much more positive influence on him than the father had. The father directly had only influence in the sense of the idea that you uh, must be manly and serve your country, that kind of thing. But otherwise, he rather abhorred his father and loved his mother. And so his mother taught him genuine devotion to duty and also a, a kind of what I would call reasonably devout Catholicism. Uh, the stories that were told about Franco later on, that he was an extremely pious man, and so on and so forth, are, are considerably exaggerated. But he was a good Catholic after his own lights, and he always honored his mother's memory, and she had more of a positive influence on him than his father did. What he did not exactly learn from his mother was her sense of Christian charity. Franco did not have too much Christian charity, let's say. <laughs> I think many of my listeners are aware of the broad brushstrokes of Franco's career, of his assuming power through the Spanish Civil War, but they may be less aware of how he arrived in the position to seize power to begin with. So how did he move from that childhood in Galicia to the position of prominence that he held going into the Spanish Civil War? Well, it certainly did not have anything to do with going into politics. <laughs> Uh, he simply became a very young cadet in the military academy and was commissioned at a ridiculously early age, second lieutenant uh, at the age of 17, not quite 18 years of age, and within uh, a year or two had volunteered for the only military conflict going on, the colonial campaign in Morocco. Hmm. And what is spurs as an officer, as a combat officer in the Spanish protectorate, and got a whole series of combat promotions because he was very good at leading men under fire. <laughs> he was never impressive because he wasn't very tall, wasn't very big, and for a long time he was known as Franquito <laughs> among his fellow officers, little, little Franco, even though they, he wasn't, it wasn't that he was that tiny. There were other small officers as well, but he wasn't, it was not a physically impressive kind of person. He uh, won his spurs in the, in the army simply by example and by showing that he knew how to command, how to lead men in combat. And that was particularly because, not simply that he had a good deal of personal courage, a lot of people in the army had physical courage. What Franco had, which was different, was that he had nerve. That Mm. is, he did not lose his head. He he could think coolly and uh, figure out very rapidly what to do in an extremely stressful situation. And that was the faculty. His, His capacity for not losing his head, for keeping his nerve at all times, and being able to calculate, as if necessary, very rapidly in a combat situation, later on with much more leisure at his disposal in a political situation. And that was the sort of thing that really made him stand out. And he was very good at what he did in the army, so that he won promotions very rapidly and became the youngest brigadier general. <laughs> but what's important to understand here concerning his later career is this had nothing to do with politics. <laughs> there had been, since the early 19th century, a lot of what are called political generals in the Spanish army. Franco was not one of them. He always made it clear that he was a professional. He emphasized strict professionalism when a good deal of the Spanish army officer corps was not so strictly professional. So he stayed out of politics. Hmm. Of course, this gave him a very strong military position, a lot of prestige 
and a lot of authority in the army when it came down to a point of absolute national crisis with the beginning of the Civil War in 1936. So it, it was an unusual kind of route. It was not because he was always finagling for political influence. It's because he stayed out of politics directly. He, of course, was known to have certain values, certain positions. He was conservative. He was Catholic. But he was not a man of extreme right. He did not go in for extremist politics. And when the Spanish political system began to break down in 1936, and they tried to recruit him for political conspiracies, the army should not be involved in political conspiracies or try to take power because this corrupts the army. Hmm. The army should not be involved in, in, in political crises. The politicians are paid to solve political crises. The army could only intervene if there was a situation of total national breakdown. And he held that position from 35, 36, for months and months as political institutions were placed under more and more stress and only changed his, well, didn't really change his position. He believed finally in the middle of July 1936 that constitutional law and order had simply collapsed. Uh, a situation of chaos developed in which there was no longer any effective state uh, and that therefore the military had to intervene. And the funny thing is that his position in many ways had been before that time to shore up the republic. He didn't really like the republic because he wasn't a liberal. And the republic was a democratic system, but he said this is the law and order we have. And he was a man of law and order, and he wanted to preserve the law and order of the republic. When that finally broke down under the pressure of the revolutionaries, he then said we, we have no choice. So when the Civil War began, he was in a very strong position in the military. And it was because of this strong position in the military, not because of any political background, which he didn't really have, that he was able to be the main candidate to take over as the supreme commander in the Civil War. Hmm. Now, having said what I've just said, <laughs> the time came, once the Civil War began, it was clear that the insurrectionist army needed leadership, and it probably needed a commander-in-chief. And once that became clear, after about a month had passed, he gave the green light to certain personal supporters of his to promote him for the position of commander-in-chief, uh, so that two and a half months after the conflict started, Franco ends up as the jefe unico, the commander-in-chief, and he made it clear when they made him commander-in-chief that he could not do the job successfully and win the civil war unless he uh, was also the leader of the government. Hmm. So he uh, took the position, the even position of what in fact would be a kind of prime minister, but a dictator prime minister while the civil war was on. And he defined that as he assumed these powers, as the powers of chief of state, which really made him complete dictator. So there was a lot of ambition suddenly going on, but the ambition to become dictator was relatively novel. He certainly had, had not intended to become a dominant political general before the Civil War started. Once the way stood open, then he moved very fast, and he generated a lot of ambition. He had always wanted to do well. He always had wanted to be the, the top-racking officer of his age group. Mm -hmm. But this ambition that he had always had from the start only took a specifically political form with the maximal na national crisis of the Civil War which was not just a civil war, but a revolutionary, counter-revolutionary, total breakdown, rebuild everything on both sides from the bottom-up kind of civil war. Mm. And that gave him an opportunity, and there he showed plenty of ambition. He mm. took it, and once he began to fulfill it, he took the position that he had just been given this 
by all the forces on his side, and he developed then a providentialist idea about his role in Spanish government and the country's history that, in effect, he had, as it were, a kind of divine charisma, mm. particularly when they won the Civil War, and he believed that he had been elected by the military and ratified by victory in the, in the Civil War and all the people who had fought for him in the Civil War as, in effect, dictator for life. Mm-hmm. That's the way he played it, and that's exactly what, what he was. I've frequently seen Franco described as a marginal leader and an uninspiring military mind, and you address this explicitly at the beginning of your biography, noting that many do sort of dismiss him as a mediocrity. But it sounds like he did have certain strengths. And what else would you critique about this common characterization of Franco? And is it does it simply exist because of the people who are inclined to just condemn him unilaterally? No, it did not just because of that. There is that, that, that uh, very strong tendency. But Franco did not have ordinary political charisma or personal charisma at all. Now, he did uh, develop during the Civil War and afterwards, uh, and uh, even down to the end of his dictatorship, a certain kind of charisma. But this was a charisma of accomplishment. That hmm. he was the figure who, who led the army, and he was the, the commander who achieved victory. He was the one who saved Catholicism, He was the one who saved Spain from the revolution and the left. For a lot of people, this gave him charisma. He was seen then, indeed, as a special kind of figure. Even so, once the Civil War was over, thinking people uh, said, well, that's all very well, but he's just a general. Uh, this, This man is not personally, as a political leader, as a political thinker, impressive. When is he going to give way to some other kind of government? So, in fact, uh, as soon as the Civil War was over, there was some questioning of Franco, even among his own people, hmm. his own colleagues. When is he, he going to name someone else prime minister and then just uh, act as chief of state and not really as the dictator of the government and to create some kind of more normal, uh, regular political system or restore the monarchy? Hmm. And, none, of course, none of these things happened. Franco was considered the less impressive because he could not speak imposingly. Franco suffered uh, some kind of a throat or, or bronchial problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe he had to do a bit with his tonsils. He had a very high-pitched voice, very quiet. He could not shout at his troops because his voice just wasn't strong enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever he talked, he talked in very quiet tones, so that in speech he was not impressive depending on the position from which he spoke. Hmm. But the position from which he spoke as a senior commander of the army, and then as dictator, of course, was a very important position, so people carefully paid attention. But he he could not talk in a charismatic fashion. He could not give uh, loud, haranguing speeches. He did not have a vibrant personality. He was was a cold man, Hmm. not emotive, completely unexpressive, very little of what the psychologists would call affect, in his personality, he just didn't have much expression. Hmm. He was a cold fish. Even his daughter says, well, basically, my father, yes, was what you would call a, a cold man. He just did not display emotion. He did not suffer from nerves. He was not jittery. He uh, always maintained an even keel, but he just did not express. So he didn't have the public qualities of charisma. Hmm. The only charisma was a charisma of, of achievement, and therefore he was not going to seem impressive 
unless you were impressed essentially by what he did. Then the Civil War lasted a long time. Yeah, military critics would say, well, where had Franco really had any significant military experience? He had fought only in the small protectorate that Spain held in northern Morocco. This is a relatively small territory. Mm-hmm. He never commanded more than about 5,000 men at any one time in that. It was sort of a, uh, a glorified brigadier general, but, but uh, no, nothing more than that. Never got to any kind of complex commanding position. Never had anything to do with combined arms. Never had anything to do with uh, directing the new kinds of warfare that came at the end of World War I with planes, with, with tanks, and so forth. Just the, the merest brushing of that sort of thing. And then the Civil War went on for nearly three years. So Franco's critics said, well, why didn't Franco win faster? Uh, of course, what happened there was that at the beginning, uh, Franco had only half the army, and he had almost none of the national resources, very little of the Navy, very little of the Air Force. He had to build things up. But it is true that in the eventual drive on Madrid, which took uh, four months in the autumn of uh, 1936, it took a long time to manage those four months to Madrid. And his critics said, well, why didn't he concentrate faster in some kind of blitzkrieg operation and seize the capital? And then he would have won the Civil War very rapidly, and we would have been spared a great deal of of this bloodshed and suffering. Uh, Actually, it was not quite that simple because he just didn't have the wherewithal to advance that rapidly on Madrid. But these criticisms abounded. And then uh, people wanted to know, why did Franco, in conducting the Civil War, always proceed in a very methodical kind of way, one foot in front of the other, rather than some kind of brilliant end run or breakthrough? Why didn't he do some kind of blitzkrieg to pierce to the enemy's rear very rapidly and end the war with one brilliant campaign? He did not think in terms of brilliant campaigns. He was very methodical. That's the way he he was slow to make up his mind, and he proceeded always very carefully. But he never made dangerous advances that he couldn't back up. There were never any retreats. Anytime uh, his uh, army did move forward, it was logistically very well prepared. It had all its supplies, had all its rear bases, had its reserves. So there was never an invasion of a counterattack throwing him back. Hmm. No advance was ever reversed by, uh, to an extent by a counterattack. Hmm. So that he was slow and unimaginative, but uh, he was also very effective. It's true that whenever the Republican army took the offensive in a secondary front and began to seize the initiative, Franco had a tendency to stop his main operation and first parry the enemy and fight the enemy on a ground of his own choosing before going ahead with his own operations. He did that several times. People said, well, Franco really has no sense of independent leadership, of knowing what he wants to do. Hmm. What he said was that in a civil war, you can't allow the enemy any kind of psychological or political advantage, because in a civil war, psychology and politics are very important. You have to thoroughly defeat any initiative which they carry out and show that they can uh, execute no successful initiative on their own. That may not have been entirely the best way to do it, but that's the way he looked at it. And, of course, he was never defeated, but he was slow and methodical. His Hmm. critics said he was too slow, too methodical. And I've read that because of his slow and methodical approach, he risked losing support at times, and that this was, in fact, one of the causes behind the decision to bomb the small Basque town of Guernica. And often in the accounts that I've read of the Civil War, this is highlighted as a a major turning point and, and is infused with all kinds of significant meaning. And yet, in your 
biography of Franco, I was surprised to see it receive basically about two pages. And you seem to suggest that it's historically overstated and a, a consequence of a, a sort of a propaganda campaign. So could you talk more about that, about the role of Guernica within the Spanish Civil War? The, the, the Guernica operation was uh, very small, militarily unimportant, and from almost any point of view, insignificant operation, except for the fact that the town of Guernica, being a, a North Spanish town with a lot of wooden structure in it, happened to suffer major fire as a result of the bombing, the use of a certain number of incendiary bombs, which were used on other occasions, which burned a great deal of the town. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many people were killed. The, the total number of civilian deaths in this operation was about 150, which, of course, if one of your loved ones is one of 150, is a lot of people. But by the standards of the World War II era, this was a very small bombing enterprise. And all of the propaganda about it is completely overblown, with the exception of two points. Most of the bombing was done by the German bombers, the, the Africa Corps of German planes serving with Franco's forces and doing a lot of the, the bombing. And the town uh, did, to a considerable extent, burn down. Mm-hmm. The great loss of life never occurred. The idea of a grand bombing experiment, uh, saturation bombing, on a civilian target is an exaggeration hmm. uh, because this was a, a standard uh, kind of procedure uh, done by 27 German medium bombers, which would only carry about one ton of bombs apiece. So we're talking about 30 bombs dropped on Guernica. This was uh, relatively inconsequential. The same thing had happened uh, a week or two before in the town of Durango, hmm. not very far away, very near the front to soften up the immediate rear guard and enable a breakthrough on the front line. And in fact, a few more people had been killed in the bombing of Durango than in the bombing of Guernica, but there was no big fire. And though more people were killed, no one paid any attention to the bombing of Durango at all. Hmm. The, the idea that Guernica was not a military objective is wrong. The front was only a few kilometers away, and the main escape route for the Basque army lay over a bridge right beside the town. So the real objective of the bombing was the bridge, and then to, to try to level a good deal of the town to b- block any escape route. Hmm. didn't really level that much of the town, though a lot of it burned down. And given the very poor bomb sites that were used at that time, there were no dive bombers, and not a single bomb fell on the bridge. So the chief of staff of the uh, Condor Legion believed the whole operation was, was a failure because it did not destroy the bridge, did not destroy the escape route, and the commander of Franco's Northern Army General Mola did not take advantage of the, any disruption anyway to effect a rapid advance. He was too slow. Wow. So uh, Richthofen, the uh, chief of staff, decided that the whole thing had been a failure. It was a relatively routine bombing operation, a small operation. did not have major consequences, except that a, a big fire was started. And it was absolutely routine in terms of military operations in Spain and elsewhere at that time. It was no technological experiment, strategic experiment, or anything of that sort. It was a relatively ordinary uh, kind of operation on a town, but there was so much negative publicity that after that time, Franco gave a categorical order, since he had had nothing to do with this. This had all been under the command of the air staff and General Mola in the north, that there be no attacks any further on cities. Hmm. You could uh, hit specific military targets right around cities, on the edge of cities, but there would be no bombing of cities after this time. And in fact, that command seems to have been respected for all the remainder of the Civil War. 
there was a lot of bombing, for example, of Republican ports, but the bombing was always aimed at the port districts, that is, where the ships come in and dock to uh, cut off military supplies. Uh, that was a targeting specifically of military targets. Hmm. On the other hand, uh, people tend to believe their own propaganda. <laughs> and the Republicans, by 1938, had made this such an important part of propaganda, because although Franco didn't have more planes than the Republicans, his planes were, were more efficient and performed more effectively. The Republicans said that Franco is, is bombing cities all the time. He's bombing us in contravention of the rules of warfare, and they insisted on a League of Nations investigation of this. And so finally, in the middle of 1938, there was a League of Nations investigation. The Republican authority has never referred to it. This has been hushed up altogether. What it found was that, in fact, in the bombing of the port cities in, in the Republican eastern Spain, the targets were always the ports. There was no significant bombing uh, of the civilian population, and therefore the charges seemed to be unsubstantiated. Wow. The only wow. time that happened was when Mussolini intervened. Hmm. In the spring of 1938, because he was quite annoyed at how slowly things were going, uh, and uh, one incident that, that occurred, and he wanted to try to frighten the Republican forces, and he ordered the relatively small uh, Italian bombing detachment uh, on Mallorca and the Balearic Islands to bomb the city of Barcelona. Italian bombers did this on Mussolini's orders for, for three days in a row because he was giving orders from Rome to the small Italian air command, uh, though technically in liaison with the Spanish on Mallorca. And again, Franco himself didn't have anything to do with it, and he was very annoyed. This was the only really serious bombing of the city because over a period of three days, about a 1,000 civilians were killed in those attacks. That was done directly by Italian bombers. However, the Pope's representative then complained to Franco that Franco was being inhumane. Hmm. Uh, he was quite annoyed because it was hard for him to admit that Mussolini was intervening and doing something that was not going through his chain of command. So the, uh, that was a considerable embarrassment for Franco. What was Franco's relationship like with the Church? Franco's relationship with the Church was generally a close and relatively harmonious one. Franco wanted to have the very best relations with the Church, but there were some ambiguities and contradictions involved there as well. Hmm. The way things developed since the, probably the single cause that most united both the moderate left and the revolutionary left in Spain was very strong anti-clericalism. It was inevitable that, that uh, Catholic opinion, church leaders, everyone on that side would rally to Franco during the Civil War because he was the person saving uh, the, the church and the Catholic religion in Spain. So that was kind of a given. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though he got along very well during the Civil War with the leaders of the church, what he did not get was a complete endorsement by the Vatican, or the opportunity, even when the Civil War ended, to sign a new concordat. Mm. In fact, the Vatican refused to sign an official concordat with Franco for nearly 20 years, mm. even though the negotiation of concordats had become the sort of a number one priority for Vatican politics, starting around the time of World War I and going down to the time of the Spanish Civil War. On the one hand, the Spanish church leaders endorsed Franco almost 100%. There some slight reservations, but not very many. And uh, the Pope would, would not permit a concordat. And for a long time only had an unofficial, not an official representative of Franco. This was changed by the end of the Civil War to be a, a regular official representative. 
but <laughs> without a concordat. And Franco was quite miffed because he thought he was being treated like a second-class Catholic. <laughs> the problem there was that the Vatican had, in prior years, signed concordats with Mussolini and then with Hitler in 1933, <laughs> and felt burned particularly by the Concordat with Hitler. And by 1937, the Vatican had become very anti-Hitler, anti-Nazi, and was concerned about Franco because it was believed, because of the German assistance to Franco in the Civil War, that he was simply too close to Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And so the people represented in Spain were always warning the leaders of the Spanish church, they must be careful to hold the Nazis at arm's length and to use their influence to see to it that Franco did not have anything more to do with Hitler than was absolutely necessary. Then there was all of the propaganda, uh, well, not just propaganda, all the reality as well, both the reality and the propaganda of the mass killings by both sides in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. There were 100,000 political executions in the Spanish Civil War, not so unevenly divided between the two sides. <laughs> though Franco's side may have committed somewhat more of them than the other side, but a lot on both sides. And this generated enormous adverse propaganda for both sides during the Civil War. Then, quite aside from the question of, of the international relations, the Vatican was concerned that it would be seen as endorsing a Catholic leader that was responsible for a good deal of indiscriminate killing. Mm -hmm. So that gave the Vatican pause as well. So Franco did not get his concordat for a long time. Not until the whole international political situation changed, nearly 20 years later during the Cold War, when he became an ally of the United States after a fashion, and then the Vatican thought that the international situation had become sufficiently balanced that it could afford to sign a concordat. Hmm. I'm interested in focusing in on the connection or the relationship between Franco and the Camino de Santiago or Santiago de Compostela in Galicia. So first, how did Franco's Galician roots influence his treatment of that region while in rule? Did he give it any preferential treatment? Did Galicia sort of stand out during the years of Franco's time in power? I think the answer to the general question about Galicia is no. He did not really give it any uh, special treatment. The leaders of his hometown bought for him a country estate as a kind of gift by the end of the Civil War for having led his cause to victory. This was the, the estate of the former novelist, Spain's first significant, well, not the first, maybe the second significant woman novelist, the real novelist, Emilia Pardo Bazan. And, and uh, they changed the name of the city to El Ferrol del Caudillo. Hmm. That was the official name of the city, although people didn't use the second part of that, all the way down to the time of Franco's death, when it was simply changed back to El Ferrol. Again, but did Franco provide any favoritism to Galicia? No, no. Galicia was was a uh, largely agricultural, largely underdeveloped district, except that it had one semi-industrial city in Vigo on the west coast, mm -hmm. and then it had a naval base in El Ferrol on the north coast, Franco's hometown. And Galicia remained a relatively undeveloped and uh, largely agricultural region for a long time under Franco as well. The regions that were favored by Franco, paradoxically were the Basque country and Catalonia. Huh. 
the two separatist regions because they had the modern economy, and since he was determined to develop a modern economy, he emphasized uh, investment in these regions to build strong national Spanish industry. The other regions most favored were Madrid and Valencia for the same reason. That is, he, like almost all modern political leaders, he tended to wager on economic strength and emphasize the strong and modern regions. Then only later on, in the last 10, 15 years of the regime, they began the idea of poles of development. <laughs> they would take eight underdeveloped districts and make them the special targets of development in parts of the country. I think there may have been one of the eight poles of underdevelopment in Galicia, to, to particularly develop Galicia, but Galicia always remained a, a somewhat more agrarian, somewhat less industrial, somewhat less urban region than uh, the main parts of Spain all the way through Franco's time. So you can't really say that he favored Galicia. And the irony is, if there were any regions aside from Madrid or Valencia that he especially favored, it was Catalonia and the Basque Country because there was a bigger economic payoff there. Hmm. And there was particularly the case in the Basque Country, even more than Catalonia. The Basque Country became the, the even more the focus of modern advanced industry than it had been before Franco's time. So that's just a kind of a, a paradox yeah. of the Franco era. I've also seen references to the fact that Franco showed some preferential treatment to Santiago de Compostela, that he, because of the connections to Catholicism, that he helped to sort of plant the seeds for the reinvigoration of the pilgrimage. Is there any truth to that? Well, there was some attention to Santiago because it was the most important cathedral and religious center in Galicia. And the Franco regime spent a great deal of money trying to rebuild and restore all the churches that had been destroyed or burned down before and during the Civil War and build new ones beside. There was a general religious revival after the Civil War going into the 1950s before it went into very sharp reverse by the end of the 1950s. And so that was not surprising. And it also it seems to be the case, although I've never really seen any uh, particular material on this, that to uh, revive the road to Santiago later on, it received no attention, obviously, during the era of World War II, because that just was not in the works. But then when you get into the 1950s and things settle down, and tourism just becomes important, even more in the 1960s, then reviving the road to Santiago became, is something that does receive some attention. Hmm. A person who has, in English, who studied this is my former student, Sasha Pak, who teaches at SUNY Buffalo. With that recommendation, I hit the academic databases and tracked down Dr. Pak's work. And I was immediately fascinated by what I read. So I didn't waste any time. By day's end, we had an interview scheduled to complete this episode. Stay tuned for that. Up next. Dr. Sasha Pack is an associate professor of history at the University of Buffalo and the author of Tourism and Dictatorship, Europe's Peaceful Invasion of Franco's Spain. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Sasha. It's a pleasure. Uh, in addition to the aforementioned book, you've written a great piece on the revival of the pilgrimage between 1879 and 1988, and I'm interested in tracking some of those developments with you in this conversation. But before we get to that specific period... 
I'm interested in the the years immediately preceding it. So what was the state of the Camino de Santiago in the decades prior to 1879? Was anybody actually walking to Compostela? Yes, there were a few people who were making the trek from districts in northern Portugal, outlying towns around Santiago de Compostela, men and women, often people who were unemployed or had some other event in their life, perhaps a widow or a widower. Some people brought their children. It wasn't necessarily something that was done for healing, Mm-hmm. like a lot of other pilgrimages at this time. But it was something that a few people in the region would do as a way to kind of seek some kind of either atonement or some kind of favor from God. But the veneration really didn't spread out beyond, like I said, these nearby areas where you'd have, where the older traditions just hadn't really died out the mm-hmm. way they did in the rest of Spain and the rest of Europe. So it had largely been reduced down to a a local pilgrimage at this point. There was a guest book, and you would have about a few dozen a year maybe signing it. And by about 1880 and after, suddenly that number just grew exponentially year by year. Hmm. Once the archdiocesan authorities really put an effort into promoting it, I mean, you you can see the difference just in looking at the registries. The number of names just explodes after that date. And 1879 is that turning point when the relics of St. James are rediscovered. How did that process play out? And what was the immediate impact for Compostela? You just mentioned that the numbers of pilgrims increase exponentially. But what else is happening in Santiago surrounding that rediscovery? Well, that's a good question. A lot. Over the decade or so preceding that, the town made more of an effort to build it up as a festival. St. James Day, July 25th, mm-hmm. was a local feast day, and so they started you know, lighting the town, having a little festival, ringing the bells, these kinds of things, you know, typical sorts of local festival type things. Mm-hmm. And then in 1879, there was a new, a new archbishop had recently arrived, he seemed determined for some reason to really resolve this kind of legend that St. James the Elder's remains had wound up in the basement or in the, you know, in the vault somewhere (laughs) under the old cathedral, which, you know, no longer existed, but the new cathedral, which was built in the 12th century, that they had somehow been buried down there. And so he undertook uh, an archaeological excavation mm-hmm. to find them. Well, did they find them? Well, they did find bones, and they brought in all kinds of scientific experts, chemists and archaeologists and anatomists, all of whom were associated with a kind of neo-Catholic political movement, hmm. incidentally. But they all attested to the fact that these very well might be the bones of St. James the Elder, in the sense that they were obviously very old. Mm-hmm. Um, they were approximately the, what we'd expect to be the right size. You know, they were very circumspect if you actually look at their language. They're mm-hmm. not saying these were definitely the bones, or even these are likely the bones, but they would not discount the possibility. And so they wrote up these reports, and they combined those with local legends, 
which were considered by them to be an acceptable historical source. Mm -hmm. These hagiographies and local legends, because they argued, well, we don't really have a written record going this far back in this region. Mm. Uh, so this is the best we can do. So they argued that we, if we combine the scientific evidence with the legends, mm -hmm. that we have a good case that these really are the relics. These really are the remains. I don't think it was much of a case. And <laughs> since then, most scholars don't really accept it, including Catholic scholars. But at the time, you have to remember the context here of a kind of culture war going on in Catholic Europe mm. in the later 19th century. These kinds of things were hot-button issues, things like papal infallibility, things like the liberal secular governments that were coming in and threatening some of the privileges that the Church had for a long time held. Mm -hmm. And this was Things like this were kind of a lightning rod, so it became very quickly an issue of identity. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of faith, uh, having faith that this tradition is real, hmm. this tradition of the remains, you know, this, the, the old story that the remains had traveled from Jerusalem? Because everybody accepted that St. James died in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. He was martyred there in 44 A.D., but there was this legend that he was brought to Santiago by a couple of his disciples, and mm -hmm. this, this was sort of part of the Catholic story in Spain. So it was sort of a culture war that pitted people who were committed to this story versus people who emphasized, I would say, reason, privileging empirical evidence, and these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So as long as the Church could perpetuate the debate it gathered attention, hmm. and it started to attract people. It attracted religious pilgrims, but it also attracted attention from scholars and from art historians, and indeed from the Vatican, which five years later actually did declare the authenticity of the relic, which I think in itself is worth noting because the Vatican often rejected these claims. Hmm. It received many of these every year from Especially in the 19th century, it was a big year, or a big period for uh, authenticating relics. Interestingly enough, it, hmm. it was there were so many revolutions and things going on in Europe in that period that churches were looted periodically. Wow. So it created this sort of marketplace of relics. So, so you know there would be locks of hair and bones and things like that <laughs> that would be trafficked and then presented as authentic. And so the Vatican was getting all kinds of false relics that they were asked to adjudicate, and they frequently rejected them. Hmm. But this one they did not, for whatever reason, and, and it presumably had to do with politics. Mm -hmm. But then the Pope uh, Leo XIII declared a special holy year in 1884, mm. in which pilgrims could get a special dispensation for making the pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. uh, and this you know, was a huge attraction for people, and then from that point on, attendance in the pilgrimage really, really like I said, really... Uh, exploded. Yeah. And so from there, the pilgrimage numbers continue to climb, and the decades pass, and the tension between more secular, liberal, political visions and more traditional religious nationalist ones continues to build ultimately into the 1930s in Spain, where the Spanish Civil War breaks out and we see Francisco Franco emerge at the forefront of this this nationalist movement. And 
as that civil war unfolded, so fast forwarding ahead those 50 plus years, I'm wondering what was the connection, the relationship between Catholicism, Compostela, and the nationalist movement under Franco? What were the bonds? What were the connections between those groups? Well, Santiago himself, as patron saint of Spain, which he had been since the 17th century, Santiago wore many hats, you could say. (laughs) He was remembered as a missionary, an evangelist, Mm -hmm. as someone who had come to Spain, or at least this was the the legend that he had come to Spain in the first Christian century Mm -hmm. uh, and evangelized. Um, But then he had a second hat as well that he wore, which was that of the Moor Slayer in the Middle Ages, that is part of the Christian crusade against Islam, which of course famously took place in the East, in the Holy Land, but also took place in the Iberian Peninsula, which had been occupied by Muslims for many centuries, and then there was this Christian crusade to expel them, and Santiago was the major symbol of that. So the notion of Santiago as a crusader Mm -hmm. fit very well with Franco's theme, not so much that he was a crusader against Islam, Mm -hmm. uh, on the contrary, but that he was a crusader against secularism, liberalism, socialism, communism, uh, all of these ideas that were all of these political movements that were all wound up together for him and which which his movement considered to be anti-Spanish. And so, of course, the pilgrimage was a good symbol for this. He certainly used it, and he got the help of the Pope at the time, Pius XI, who turned 1938 into another exceptional holy year in which people who made the pilgrimage in that year received a special dispensation, even though it wasn't technically a holy year since Hmm. St. James Day has to fall on a Sunday for that to happen ordinarily, unless the Pope intervenes. So uh, this was a way of building a Catholic constituency. Interestingly, Franco was not afraid to do this, to, to use pilgrimages for political ends, in the sense that he also encouraged Moroccan Muslims who uh, lived in the Spanish zone of the Moroccan protectorate to take the Hajj to Mecca. They um, Hmm. arranged for a vessel, a large vessel every year to bring Muslims from Morocco to Mecca. And the reason for doing this was because they were recruiting those men to be soldiers in their armies. Uh, And so (laughs) so here he is in Spain promoting a Catholic pilgrimage and the... um, St. James the Moor Slayer, but on the other side of the Strait of Gibraltar, also <laughs> facilitating pilgrimages by Muslims who he's trying to recruit into his army. Wow. Did Franco's use of the pilgrimage as a tool continue after he seized power? Did it change in certain ways? You know, one of the things that hit me when I was reading your article was it seemed like on one hand, Franco was using the pilgrimage, but on the other hand, that the pilgrimage or the archbishopric in the church might have been using Franco's regime as a tool in their own right to re-elevate Santiago. Absolutely. It was a movement that existed independently of Franco to revive the pilgrimage and to continue to connect Spanish national identity with Catholicism broadly, but also this crusading Catholicism associated with Santiago. So absolutely, the movement continued in the first decade of Franco's rule in the 1940s. It was promoted by the 
Spanish cultural institutions. They sponsored the publication of several major studies. In fact, really the best study of the medieval Santiago de Compostela pilgrimage was published in, in 1948, and it's a, a three-volume very thorough history of the pilgrimage from about 800 to 1400 or so. It goes into all kinds of aspects of it. It's fascinating to read. Uh, this was published by the uh, Francisco Franco Institute, which is a cultural institution, and it's excellent. I mean, it's, 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 it's first-rate history, and of course, some new research has shown some of the things to be slightly off, but it still remains a standard work. Mm-hmm. And there were others as well. And then youth groups, Catholic Action, the Phalangist Youth Groups, the Fascist Party of Spain, they sponsored pilgrimages. Some of them did so, I'd say most of them did so in buses and trains, not really the way that one imagines really doing a pilgrimage on foot, but they did so. The spectacle was really not the journey itself, but it was arriving at Santiago and all being together for the big mass in the cathedral. Hmm. Some did carry out the pilgrimage at that time in the, the way that we're used to thinking about this pilgrimage, that Franciscans you know, went on foot. In fact, they, they walked barefoot. Um, from <laughs> Not all of them you know, would do it all, all the way from the French border, you know, do the, the 500-mile version, but they yep. would do various versions of it, and they would do it barefoot. The fascist groups were very into athletics, also did these kind of long marches, mm-hmm. um, more in a kind of military style, but they would do it you know, on foot. They didn't, they didn't go on buses and trains. Mm. You're actually bringing up something I'm really fascinated by and, and wanted to ask you about because one of the most common debates among pilgrims today, other than whether you should wear shoes or boots, is the distinction between a pilgrim and a tourist. And there's this notion that a pilgrim has to be authentic in certain ways and that to refer to someone instead as a tourist or a turigrino is one of the most scathing of insults. But where was the line drawn between pilgrims and tourists back in this era? Yeah, that's a very recent distinction, I would say. Hmm. And I think it runs somewhat parallel to the whole distinction between sacred and profane that we get from coming from out of the uh, Reformation. Mm. And yet you see in some of these pilgrimages throughout Europe that are supposed to be very sacred, but they also sell all kinds of trinkets and souvenirs, and it becomes a very commercial exercise. So, you know, that distinction between pilgrim and tourist or between sacred and profane more generally is you know, not necessarily one that always applies in these cases. It is for the people who are organizing these things, there's often no contradiction there between something that's very commercial and something that's also very deeply spiritual for people. Hmm. This starts to come in in the 1960s. The city or the town, I should say, of Santiago de Compostela and the archdiocese have this grand plan to build a very large pilgrims campus Hmm. where they're going to bus and fly people in from all over the place. And it's going to be, you know, going to kind of look like the square in the Vatican by St. Peter's Basilica. It's going Mm -hmm. to be this large gathering place. And they have all these plans to build very modern buildings 
they want to bring this into the 20th century, including with the modern architecture. Hmm. And they start lobbying Franco for support for this. And he basically says, no. Wow. He says, this, this would be a real shame. In fact, I think that, you know, one, one never wants to lavish much praise on Franco for all the atrocities <laughs> that he carried out. But this is one place where I think he deserves some recognition that he certainly prevented the town of Santiago from becoming an architectural atrocity. I think it's a beautiful old town for anyone who's been there. Uh, and he insisted on preserving this. He thought that the constructions wouldn't really live up to their billing, hmm. that it would just be a kind of big boondoggle. And so instead, they pursued initiatives to restore some of the older existing buildings along the route and add some signage, but also just bring some of the ruins, some of the shrines that one sees along the whole route, just bring them right up to the route. Rather, than, they were kind of strewn all about. Sometimes you'd have to walk, you know, a few kilometers off the route in order to see what this or that shrine. Mm-hmm. They, you know, brought them all right up to the route, and they restored some of the buildings and some of the um, pilgrimage way stations and so forth. And so they did do a lot of, they did change it a lot. This is what you walk today, in many ways, is different. Uh, It's a different built environment from what people would have seen a thousand years ago, but it is true to the aesthetic in a sense, Mm. whereas earlier plans had been to kind of really turn it into a more touristic type of event. Hmm. And then also, I believe it was in 1965 that they established the registry of pilgrims different from anybody just who happens to arrive in Santiago. Hmm. Uh, so you would get a special passport where if you got it checked off at all the stations that proved that you had walked all the way from the French border or from wherever, you know, you got a, a special kind of certificate saying you'd done that. So I think it's really not until the 1960s that you have this distinction. And I think it just has a lot to do with new forms of tourism coming along. People would do it on horseback or on bicycle or on foot, and it had just to do with athletics. Yeah. And people, you know, this just becomes a new form of recreation that becomes popular in, in Europe. So you get a lot of French people doing it, a lot of Germans uh, doing it, in part because they may or may not be Catholic or may or may not be religiously committed, but also because they want to carry out something that their ancestors carried out and maybe do it in a way that's sort of fun, like on a bicycle or mm-hmm. sort of sporting. You mentioned Santiago Matamoros earlier and the association of that hat of Santiago with the Civil War and and Franco. But you also observe in your piece that there's a shift over the course of the 20th century. And over time, the most common representations of Santiago in the city and associated with the pilgrimage moves from Santiago Matamoros back to Santiago Peregrino, the pilgrim. Why does that process play out, and what does it reflect? Well, that's fairly straightforward. The Franco regime, at its origins, was a crusading regime. It was crusading against the forces of left-wing Marxism and liberalism and secularism and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And that could not be sustained forever. That could be sustained, you know, maybe through the 1940s, but I think even by 1947, 48 or so, it started to seem a little bit archaic. Of course, that 
rhetoric helped the Franco dictatorship ingratiate itself to the United States in the early part of the Cold War. But since the anti-communism was so wrapped up in anti-secularism, anti-liberalism as well, they did see a reason to kind of tone that down. (laughs) And so at the same time, you see European integration taking off and the first common market. Of course, Spain is left out of this, Mm -hmm. um, but they certainly had ambitions to join. And so presenting Spain as part of an old ecumenical European project dating back to the early days of Christianity was politically useful, Hmm. changing the story a little bit. And so then Santiago, the missionary, Santiago, the evangelist, picks up on the idea of a common European culture, a common European heritage. Mm -hmm. And this just becomes politically more useful for the Franco regime into the 1960s and beyond. Of course, there's also Vatican II Mm -hmm. that encourages this further, encourages a kind of liberalization of the Church. So gradually the emphasis shifts away from insisting that the relic is truly authentically that of St. James. That sort of fades away. They never disavow it, Mm -hmm. but they just sort of stop talking about it. At the same time, they talk more and more about the pilgrimage route as a historic route of exchange of ideas that all the different peoples of Europe, you know, were sharing in this common route and spreading and exchanging ideas along the route. Hmm. And so it becomes more of a symbol of exchange among the different European peoples, which is a perfect metaphor for what the European community and now European Union was trying to do. So eventually Spain did join the European community in 1986 Mm -hmm. uh, after Franco died. But I think this kind of thing laid the groundwork in many ways. And in fact, in 1988, the Council of Europe actually recognized the Camino de Santiago as the first European cultural itinerary, I think was the phrase that they Mm -hmm. used, but essentially as an important marker of a pan-European cultural heritage. Yeah. This has been fascinating, and I think people are going to learn a lot from it, Sasha. Thanks for making the time to talk with me. There is a lot to process and unpack in those interviews. Indeed, this to me is one of the incredibly satisfying and enjoyable aspects of the study of history, the eternal struggle to achieve an accurate and conclusive glimpse into the actual truth of things, knowing all the while that such moments are fleeting and limited at best. The debates on Franco and Guernica rage on among historians and I'll let those continue (laughs) offline for a while. Seeding that ground for the moment, I'm interested in how the process that played out in the period under examination in this podcast, between 1879 and 1988, bears a striking resemblance to the Camino's earlier peak in the Middle Ages. You have an ambitious archbishop 
focused on popularizing the relics and the city of Santiago. You have a crusade of sorts with a political head of state and a pope combining their influence and power in common cause. And you have Santiago Matamoros as a convenient vessel and symbol for those efforts. Indeed, what's striking to me is how closely the modern resurgence of the pilgrimage follows the medieval playbook. History doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but there are indeed echoes over time. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks again to Drs. Stanley Payne and Sasha Pack. And thanks to all of you for listening. Get involved. CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. Check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash CaminoPodcast. Connect on the Camino Forum. Lots of ways. Always good to hear from you. That's it for this time. And we'll be back soon. So see you then. Nobody asked me.